Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. Good morning, everybody. Or it's not morning. Well, it's, got, it's Sundance morning. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Tom Powers. I'm the head curator at Sundance Now Doc Club and a programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival. I uh, want to welcome you all here. I want to thank our friends at Sundance TV for uh, hosting us. This is the third or fourth year we've uh, occupied this house doing panels, and it's always uh, a good time. Um, uh, a little bit later, we'll be making this conversation interactive, so if you've got some uh, questions along the way, think of them, and we'll have a microphone circulating later. If, uh, if you don't know what Sundance Now Doc Club is, let me uh, do a little plug for that. Sundance Now Doc Club is an online subscription streaming site filled with great documentaries uh, curated by me and our guest curators like Ira Glass and Susan Sarandon. Uh, and uh, you, if you want a 30-day trial, you're in luck. You can sign up uh, outside. I think they'll give you a free Sundance Now coffee mug, uh, portable coffee mug if you sign up. So uh, think about that on your way out today. Now, uh, let me turn to our panelists. So we've got four filmmakers here who are all making their, the world premieres of their films on Sunday. Uh, no one really has seen these uh, films uh, yet. I've, I got an early look at them so that I can talk about them knowledgeably. But, uh, but you know, on Sunday, I'm really waiting in anticipation for social media to be exploding with, uh, with responses to these really terrific films. Uh, so let me um, start at the very end. Uh, Dawn Porter uh, is not a first-timer at the Sundance Film Festival. She was here in 2013 with her film Gideon's Army about uh, uh, public defenders in the South. That film won editing award here and went on to win uh, lots of other awards. Uh, her new film is called Trapped, uh, which is uh, um, about what's happening in, uh, the, uh, to abortion clinics uh, today with new trap laws, and I'll have Dawn um, in a minute uh, tell you more about uh, her film in her own words. Next to Dawn is Kim Snyder, the author of Newtown, uh, about the school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. Um, I have to say, Dawn's film probably made me the angriest at the festival. I have to say, Kim's film probably made me the saddest of, uh, of watching the festival. Uh, Kim has uh, made other films before. Her uh, last film that, uh, that I can think of is uh, Welcome to Shelbyville, which is about uh, uh, immigration, looking at a small town in America as they absorb new immigrants. Uh, next to Kim Snyder is uh, Josh Kriegman, uh, his first time at the Sundance Film Festival with his first feature film that he directed along with Lee Steinberg, who's here, uh, right here. Uh, their film is called Wiener, 
uh, about Anthony Weiner uh, uh, during his mayoral um, uh, uh, campaign. Uh, that film has already been the subject of a New York Times article uh, earlier this week, and, uh, and along with these others, it'll be premiering on Sunday. And then last is uh, Dylan Reeve, who is uh, one of the uh, duo filmmaking team behind the film Tickled. Uh, his filmmaking partner, David Ferrier, is, someone, is back there. Uh, Tickled, uh, maybe uh, a film coming in with the biggest shroud of secrecy uh, at the festival for reasons that will probably be explained once you get to see it uh, on Sunday. Uh, it was a late announcement at the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, David and Dylan are visiting us from New Zealand, uh, so we're very happy to have him here. So this, the, the name of this uh, panel is called Hot Button Topics, uh, the sort of unifying concept that uh, caused us to assemble these uh, filmmakers. You know, they're, they're each putting their finger in different ways on, uh, on, on topics that are controversial, on uh, topics that uh, I think will, will stand to spin off a lot of other news and conversations. And uh, one of the things I wanted to uh, explore in today's panel is you know, just what, it, what brought them to these films in the first place, to these topics, and, uh, and what it feels like to kind of be in the hot zone of, uh, of working on a kind of controversial topic. So let me go back to Dawn Porter and her film, uh, Trapped. Dawn, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what Trapped is? Um, well, first, thanks for having us all here. Um, this is some of the funnest kind of stuff we do because we get to talk with people. Um, so thanks to Tom and to AMC or Sundance Now or whoever I'm supposed to thank for getting giving us this opportunity to be together. Uh, Trapped is a film about uh, trap laws, which are laws that regulate abortion clinics in ways that they do not regulate other medical procedures. Um, and like most people, I thought because we have Roe v. Wade that abortion uh, was protected in America, but that's actually not true. Um, more than 27 states have severe trap laws, which are causing clinics to close. Um, in the last five years, approximately half of the abortion clinics across America have closed, and this was news to me. It was stunning and shocking, um, and I was similarly angry. So um, that's what started me off on the film. And so, Don, let me stay on your film uh, for a minute. Uh, you know, there have been other very good films uh, about the uh, about abortion in this country. In recent memory, I can think of Twelfth in Delaware by uh, Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady. I uh, think of uh, After Tiller. So when, when you were approaching this topic, you must have been mindful of, of these other films. And how did that enter your thinking? And you know, what were you looking to do different from that? Um, I really think of Trapped as um, it's, it's about abortion, but it could be about any number of social issues um, where an extreme conservative minority is uh, passing laws in, I think, a disingenuous way um, that restricts people's individual liberties. So I actually think of it as, as much about politics, race, and class, um, and about who has political power and who's exercising it, um, as much as about abortion access. Because I think the same tactics, so essentially what happens is abortion is protected at the federal level, it's constitutional right, but states can pass laws restricting time, place, and manner for how clinics are regulated. 
And as uh, there is uh, a group much like the Koch brothers, Americans United for Life, and they draft model laws and they pass them around to states. And they keep passing these laws um, and seeing what sticks. And so as a result, you have a, you know, a targeted effort at a, a constitutionally protected right but it's very hard um, to stay open while you're fighting these legal battles. And I think that that's a problem for democracy, um, the, the way that these laws are being passed. And that's what I would love for people to be talking about. And uh, some of these laws are going to be coming to a head this year in the Supreme Court. Can you talk about the backdrop of that with your film? Yeah, you know, sometimes the documentary gods are with you. Um, and this is definitely one of those cases. One of the clinics that we're following has challenged these laws in Texas in particular. And uh, in November, the Supreme Court said it will hear a challenge. So um, in March, uh, there before the Supreme Court will be the most important decision about abortion rights and abortion access that this country has seen in, in the last 30 years, um, literally could upend Roe v. Wade. And I think that that's something people should be talking about. Is that where we intend to be? Um, and so, you know, you started with how is, like, how do you make a film when you have other incredible films in the same space? And I think I think of them as on a continuum. You know, like I love the style, the the kind of beautiful intimacy of After Tiller. Um, it's very much something I'm attracted to. Twelfth in Delaware exposes you to kind of this surreal world, and I I feel like I hope that there's a little bit of both of those things. Um, those are teams of filmmakers that I admire greatly. And um, I, so I feel like this is part of their conversation they started, and this is continuing that. You know, I think it's an important idea to put out there for documentary filmmakers and the rest of the media is that you need more than one documentary film to tell complicated stories. I can remember in the early days of the war in Iraq, uh, the, the first documentary that came out was called Gunner Palace, and then after that, some other very good documentaries came out, and people would say, oh, well, there already was an Iraq War documentary, as if one documentary could take on such a complicated topic. Well, uh, let me turn to Kim Snyder and her film, uh, Newtown, which is, uh, I think, share some qualities with uh, Dawn's uh, film, Trapped, in that you're, uh, you're approaching a highly contentious uh, uh, subject in, in America right now. The backdrop of your film um, is uh, gun control debate, although the foreground of your film uh, the, the, uh, is not really about the politics of, of gun control. It's, it's more about bringing us into the lives of these people in Newtown. Actually, let me have you describe what your film is in your own words. Sure, thanks for having me. Um, Newtown is, is, uh, is, is about the aftermath, sort of, um, of the, the tragic massacre that happened um, back in 2012 in Connecticut, and uh, it really chronicles three years of what aftermath looks like in this town um, on a very emotional and experiential level, and it is the portrait of an a community through a number of lenses, not just um, the uh, some some parents who lost children, which are the epicenter of some of the story, but also um, a rendering of the entire town through teacher, first responder, uh, town priest, so that there is um, more of a collective, intimate portrait of of the town. So let me ask you a version of the question I asked Dawn. Gun control uh, is a topic that's been come at from a lot of different levels, uh, angles in, in documentary filmmaking. What were you thinking about your film in relation to, to other films about gun tragedies? 
Well, you can't talk about Newtown without talking about gun violence. And I really did, prime, first and foremost, I wanted, to, I wanted to go at it in a very different way. I did not want to make an advocacy film. And I wanted to really look at the emotional fallout and um, what a town looks like two and three years. Every, and with these escalating events, every time we hear of one, um, what, what the fabric of this town is and what it looks like on its road to repair and what resilience looks like in, in that process of you know, neighbors who have to confront neighbors who lost children when they, they got their kids back. And I was, I was very much drawn to the, the, um, the, the, the community psychology that, that was uh, in, entailed in that, that that was something different. Um, but in terms of taking on the issue, which is, is of course, this monster backdrop, I think that, um, you know, a couple of the parents in my film um, do work tirelessly right now to affect change and to, um, it's funny, they would probably stay away from using the term gun control and, and use, uh, you know, words like, um, because, they, because they, take, they take on a mixed bag. You know, it's, it's, it's certainly it is gun reform, it's, it, but it's also addressing a myriad of issues that come even before the issue of legislative change, along with that. Um, so I wanted this to become part of that conversation for sure, but didn't really want it to be an either-or thing. I really wanted this to be an intimate portrait that would um, break through desensitization. That was like my main goal, was to try to pierce through what I think is dangerously happening where none of us can really take in the, the repeated, um, these repeated incidents. All right, let me move on to Josh Kriegman uh, with his film uh, Wiener. And if I said that Dawn's film may be the angriest and Kim's film made me the saddest, I think Josh and Elise's film made me the most astonished at human folly. Um, uh, so uh, Josh, can you describe for uh, people sure. who may not know what the, your film Wiener is about? Yeah, I think, um Many people know Anthony Weiner was a U.S. congressman who uh, got caught up in a sexting scandal when he uh, accidentally sent a message that was intended as uh, a direct message to one woman to his, I think, 40,000 Twitter followers. Um, and that ended in a scandal that ultimately resulted in his resignation from Congress. And then a couple years later, he decided to run for mayor of New York City in an attempt to re-enter politics and sort of redeem himself. And that's when Elise and I started filming and we captured uh, the New York City mayoral campaign really from the day he announced all the way through to the election and we were able to be there behind the scenes through the uh, entire event. So as background, you used to work for Anthony Weiner as his New York chief of staff when he was a congressman. Yeah, I, I got to know him uh, working in politics. I, I was his chief of staff when he was a congressman and um, we stayed in touch over the years, and after I left uh, politics and got into filmmaking, um, and, and he resigned from Congress, when he decided to run, I, I approached him and asked him if we could make a film, and he said okay. Can you tell us a little bit more what that conversation was like? Was it an elaborate conversation, a short conversation? Um, it, you know, it, it, it wasn't elaborate exactly. I mean, a lot of people ask, you know, why did he allow you to film this? And I think you know, we don't really know exactly the answer. Um, it's a question actually that we pose uh, in the film itself. And, um, you know, I don't, for those who haven't seen it yet, I think we'll sort of let him speak for himself. Um, you know, it, it is a, one of those things where, you know, people don't remember when the campaign began. Uh, you know, the question was, would New Yorkers forgive him? He was just a couple years away from a pretty disgraceful sexting scandal. And a lot of people thought there was no chance. 
But what happened is, and people don't know or don't remember, he was winning, right? And everyone was like, oh my God, this guy could be the mayor of New York City. And um, so for a, a long time while we were following him, it was very exciting. It was very, um, you know, it had the potential to be this incredible redemption story. Uh, and then when things took a turn, I was sort of embedded and, and had become kind of a fixture on the campaign. And so I kept shooting. You know, when I think of the history of election campaigns, I think of uh, election documentaries. There's a lot of films that started out thinking one thing was going to happen and something else happened. When I think when D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges made The War Room, they thought they were going to be making a film about Bill Clinton. It turned out to be a film about George Stephanopoulos and James Carville. When uh, Marshall Curry started making Street Fight about Cory Booker's campaign for mayor in Newark, he thought Cory Booker was going to win. Uh, and spoiler alert, he didn't. Um, uh, and so, you know, in a way, your film is uh, following something of, uh, of fits into that tradition that you thought you were getting into one kind of film and, and then it turned into a different kind of film. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I don't know that we really had any idea what was going to happen. I mean, part of the, what was so exciting about the campaign and, and, and just being there was that the entire world had no idea what was, what was going to happen, right? It was, it was this incredible unknown about how this could unfold, but what we did know is that you know it was going to be really interesting and really exciting, and so it was just one of those moments as documentarians of sort of launching in and staying with it. Uh, let me move on to uh, Dylan Reeve, uh, one of the directors of Tickled. Uh, Dylan, explain to us what Tickled is. Um, it's really simple. It's just a documentary about tickling. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it it's hard to tell the story because it's. Um, it's quite complex, and if you tell too much, it's a bit of a. There's spoiler. a lot of reveals in this yeah. film. So I'll, I'll start. I'll, I'll tell you how how we got started, which is that um, David Farrier, who I directed the film with, is a journalist, a light entertainment journalist, does quirky stories on uh, Three News, which is a you know national news show. It's like a Morgan Spurlock of New Zealand. Yeah, I guess so. And um, so he saw this thing on Facebook, which was competitive endurance tickling. It's this company called Jane O'Brien Media out of Los Angeles or New York, um, and they pay young, attractive men, 18 to 25, um, athletic builds, they want them to fly from wherever they are in the world. In our case, there were some New Zealanders who'd gone. Um, they want them to fly to Los Angeles. They'll pay for that flight, put them up in a five-star hotel, give them $2,000 cash. All they need to do is be tied to a bed and tickled by other young, athletic men. So that with was their it. clothes on. With their clothes on. It's not porn. Um, so David saw that and thought, well, that'll be a funny story. If I can find a Kiwi who's done that or one who's going to do it, we can make a funny little quirky three-minute news story about this crazy weird thing that's happening on the internet because the internet's crazy. So he posted on their Facebook page and said, have any Kiwis done this? I'd like to interview you. And um, within not very many minutes, there was a reply back from Jane O'Brien Media saying, we're not interested in doing a story with you. We, frankly, we don't want to have anything to do with a homosexual journalist. Which given the nature of the videos, was an unusual response. And so that kind of shut off, that shut off our idea of doing, or his idea of doing a story about that, but it got me and him very curious about what was actually happening. So we started digging, basically. And, and the, the documentary starts from, from that point, essentially, where we start digging into what is actually going on, what is Jane O'Brien Media, who is Jane O'Brien, who is Debbie Kuhn, who's the person that was communicating with us, what's really happening. And that's the documentary, and it goes on for two hours until we don't really know what we figure out. Uh, I would uh, say your film left me the most unsettled of um, 
of the films I've seen so far at Sundance. I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> um, it, yeah, tickling. It, it will change if you if you're a big fan of tickling in any in any light-hearted way. It's possibly not the film to watch. <laughs> it, it will it will change your perceptions a wee bit. So you know, I mean, all these films in different ways. Uh, uh, you know, go to some unsettling places. Um, uh, Kim and Don, I, I, I think in some ways you, your films are the, the heaviest of, of content of what we're talking about uh, here. And I want to kind of, you know, ask um, you as filmmakers, you know, what it's like to kind of be living in that uh, headspace for, uh, uh, for several months. I mean, Don, in, in your case... Uh, you know, you're filming at these clinics, you're uh, seeing uh, women, often very dire straits, you know, not be able to get the, the services that they're wanting. Um, Kim, in your case, you're interviewing people who have gone through the most devastating loss. Talk to me how you cope with that. Um, you know, I think when you start, at least for me, when I start making a film, it starts with my curiosity. Um, but then once you find your characters, your interest shifts to telling their story and to experiencing what they experience. And when, when, it's, when your goal is to, to help other people understand just something remarkable happening that a lot of people aren't seeing, it kind of gives you some strength, you know, to, and, and a lot, I think, you know, as hard as this is for me, I get to go home. And they're just here all the time, day in and day out, doing something really, really difficult. Um, but, you know, there's, there's pretty dark times. Um, you know, I was not always nice to my children. Um, you know, for my first movie, it was the same thing. You'd see people go to jail, and I remember specifically coming home from a filming trip, and I had seen this, like, 15-year-old, get railroaded and go to jail, and I was really, really upset about it, because I, I couldn't do anything. And then my seven-year-old was like, can I have Xbox 19? And I was like, no! Are you in jail? And, you know, and my husband was like, you gotta take it down a little bit. So, <coughs> um, it's very important to step away um, and to try and make sense of what you're seeing. Um, but I think also in both experience, both of my films, um, I kind of leaned on my characters and they are very good at educating you about, you know, um, and I kind of am like, if he can do it, I can do it. Um, and I, and I would really think about that a lot. I think the one, the one other thing I'll finish with is sometimes you lull your, yourself into a false sense of security, to be absolutely honest. And so over the two and a half years of filming in abortion clinics, I got so comfortable with my subjects and being there that even though there's nerves and people scream mean things at you, um, you kind of get used to it. Um, and then Colorado happened and the guy murdered people in Colorado right as we were finishing. And all of a sudden, you know, you're like, I felt so protected by my characters that that I, I think I was like, I'm a little bit naive, you know? So like, we're here, we have a huge security plan and team for them because every, and they think about this every day, that they could get shot going to work. So it's not, it's not easy, but I think it's necessary and I think it's important. Kim, can you talk about that in, in your own experiences? I think there are a lot of, a lot of similarities for me, um, you know, 
entering into something where you're giving people um, voice. In the case of Newtown, um, I felt really early on that these are people who had been inundated with media, um, tons of it um, in, the, in the early place, and talking a lot about long-form documentary and how it was different. So it was a lot of very slow and careful trust building. Uh, for me personally, that's a, a really rewarding experience um, in, in my style of, of documentary filmmaking. Um, and I got a very uh, strong sense early on that the entire town as a community, as a character, and certainly these parents, felt very othered. You know, here they were having sort of normal lives and just this unthinkable thing happened. So um, this idea of entering into a relationship of not being afraid of um, delving into territory and, and, and testing boundaries um, with them and developing that trust ultimately was something um, that was very collaborative and very, uh, at times, very uplifting, actually, because you really, everything you could say is cliche, but it's, um, it's, 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 it's being able to observe how people do get through just the, the most un unimaginable things. You know, uh, just talking about security, Don, it <clears throat> struck me yesterday, my first day at the festival, I would see no firearm signs that I don't recall seeing before <clears throat> at the Sundance Film Festival, and there were bag checks that I don't recall uh, experiencing before, so it's a little bit of a sign of the times uh, that we're in. Um, at the Toronto Film Festival, where I work, our form of security is holding our festival in Canada. <laughs> <clears throat> Um, uh, Josh and, and Dylan, I want to ask you a question. Uh, you know, nine weeks ago at the Doc NYC Festival where I'm the artistic director, we showed the world premiere of Making a Murderer. No one had uh, heard of this uh, before. And, uh, and I you know, remember looking at the directors and thinking, like, you're about to go on uh, a big journey. Although none of us really knew what kind of journey that would be. There was entire, it was entirely possible that Making a Murderer would just kind of go under the radar in the holiday season and maybe would have a small cult audience. Um, as we know, instead it's gotten swept up into, you know, uh, several news cycles, and, and in a way, you, when you make a film, if it strikes a nerve, you know, other reporters come in and, and start moving with that story uh, in, in different directions. And, you know, when I think about uh, Wiener and Tickled, I, I could see the potential for that happening, maybe with the New York Times article about Wiener, it's already uh, kind of happening. And I wonder, you know, how much you've given that thought about you're going to put your film out in the world and then it's going to begin this new cycle of conversation and, uh, you know, what are you preparing for in that regard? I mean, we thought about it a little bit in, in as much as um, the, some aspects of the story we're telling have been explored briefly in media in the past. And so you know, maybe there's things that will hook certain types of media. I don't, I, I can't imagine it catching the attention in the way that, like, making a murderer has, and, and I don't think it has enough, um, you know, it doesn't, it's not going to connect strongly enough with enough people, I would, I would think, to get that sort of wide coverage. But I can certainly see there are going to be, you know, some media outlets that might find very interesting facets of the film that they might want to explore, and, and we'd be quite interested to see that, because there were certainly things that we couldn't discover that other people with different resources and different connections might be able to. So that would be, I mean, you know, we'd love to read whatever comes out or see whatever comes out in that respect. 
uh, Josh, even uh, in your case, even more so because you're dealing with a prominent uh, uh, figure. Uh, you know, what are you anticipating uh, and is going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think we don't really know uh, what's going to happen, and it's you know we can't really. It's hard to control exactly how the how the narrative unfolds. I mean, one of the things that we are excited about is that we really want uh, our film to be a part of the political conversation. Um, you know, it is about Anthony Weiner and following him through the course of the campaign and really getting uh, sort of remarkably sort of human side of the story that we don't necessarily see in the headlines and, and playing out, um, you know, in the, in, the, in the tabloids and on cable news. Um, but this, you know, it's also about much more than just one man and one campaign and Anthony Weiner. We really uh, want to have it be a part of the conversation about what our politics has really become and how much... You know, this is a real front row seat to really witness and experience how much our politics is driven by, you know, an appetite for spectacle and this impulse toward entertainment. Um, you know, and there's... More know, than a front row seat. It's like a back room behind the closed doors I guess that's uh, right. seat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, so that's... You know, we're excited for it to be a part of the, uh, you know, today's political conversation. Uh, I want to... Uh, make this interactive. If you've got a question, I think we've got some, uh, we've got a microphone here that uh, we can bring to you so we can uh, record your question. Raise your hand. Don't be shy. Uh, if you don't ask them, I'll ask them. Uh, uh, what, uh, uh, Dylan and, uh, and Josh, let me ask you a version of the question that I asked um, Don and Kim. You, you know, maybe the headspace of your film isn't quite as... Uh, uh, as uh, you know, rough as as people who've lost kids or uh, or people who are being denied services, but there's there must be a lot of tension that you carried around uh, with these subjects, and there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of kind of tough filmmaking decisions uh, to be made in, um, in in the course of your films. Can you talk us through how you you know coped with with like those moments of serious tension? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that uh, our experience compares, obviously, to to yours. I don't know. It uh, sounds like he's pretty mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that either. I, I think that, you know, it, it, in the course of filming this this film, it was just a question of just kind of staying with it. I mean, it was uh, a little bit of a you know wild ride, just just sort of going through the contours of of the campaign and continuing to 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 document uh, to document the story. I mean, the one thing that that we really experience there with him and that we are excited to show in the film is just how different the, you know, the behind, beyond the headlines experience is from what you get to see in the tabloid news. And, and, um, and it, you know, it's, it, it's quite different and it's quite human and raw and real. And that was uh, what was exciting about being there. I think um, our experience was very different in, in that, um, the biggest challenge we faced in that respect was that we were making a film ultimately about um, people who didn't want a film made about them. Seriously. Really didn't. didn't. Um, and as like, before we even... Well, as soon as we announced our attention, because it, it started initially as a, a much smaller thing that we, we did on Kickstarter, and as soon as that happened, we were receiving um, legal threats. We had private investigators. Um, literally one turned up on David's doorstep one morning. So, you know, and they were all telling us that, um, that you shouldn't pursue this. This will, you know, basically they told us they would financially ruin us. Which in a way is a little, I mean, I think with these other three filmmakers, they kind of knew that they were getting into, you know, a certain storm of controversy. You thought you were making a film about people who tickle each other. 
Well, certainly, I mean, I think when we started the film, we knew we were making a film about something more than that, but it, we didn't necessarily know we were um, facing the type of opposition that we were, and and at times that became personal. We, we actually had, you know, we had people come to New Zealand from the United States, fly, you know, thousands of miles to come and tell us that there was no story and we should not be making a film. And so when, and, and when you've done that, and when they also say, if you come to the United States, this is I mean, almost a literal quote, if you come to the United States, there won't be a minute that you are not being followed by a private investigator and there won't be a minute that you are not being served with legal papers. And it's like, well, at that point, you sort of think, I don't really have a lot of money or resources, so maybe this isn't actually worth pursuing. And, it, you know, there, so there are times, especially once we got here, there were times when the paranoia was quite high. Um, question uh, over here, if we can get, oh, lots of questions now. Okay, start here. Josh, I have a question for you. So you were his campaign uh, staff manager, or his staff manager? I was his New, New York, York chief of staff. Yeah. Okay, so he obviously had a lot of trust in you to let you go behind the scenes. The scandal hits, you continue filming. Um, it doesn't occur to them that they shouldn't be filming. And in the New York Times article, it said that you wouldn't show them anything. So at what point and what exactly happened did this trust that they really had in you break down and how's that how's that affected your relationship <laughs> with Anthony Weiner? I mean, I, I actually have a, a, a positive relationship with Anthony. Um, we've been friends uh, since I was uh, working for him 10 years ago. Uh, the, the Times actually got it wrong. Um, we, uh, we did offer to show him the film um, an earlier rough cut uh, a while ago, um, and he hasn't seen it yet, but it's a standing invitation and we're looking forward to him seeing it. Yeah, no, we're still on good terms. The Times also said WMD was in Iraq, so uh, <coughs> considered the source. Uh, I think there's some hands up. Uh, I see a hand up back there. We get her a microphone. Hi, I have a question for Kim. Um, I grew up right outside of Newtown, Connecticut, and when the Sandy Hook shooting happened, like from personal experience, it just felt like the world was ending. Um, my question is, did you feel conflicted about dealing with Adam Lanza himself as a character, and especially after becoming really close with the families, um, about portraying him in a certain light? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, <clears throat> very early on, I really asked myself... So for context, Adam Lanza... Is uh, the shooter... Is the shooter. ...that was involved in the in Newtown. Um, <clears throat> very early on, I decided, uh, thought hard about what, what this film wouldn't be, even before I thought about what it would be, and I wasn't interested in making a film about sort of in, in the mind of the killer, and I stayed, tried to stay very close to the point of view of the community, and even three years later came to a place where the trauma, the shock, the trauma, the processing is so large that their bandwidth, I wouldn't say they don't think about it, but um, I, I have a, made a very deliberate decision not to use his name, um, it's not used in the film, which is something that's you hear increasingly in victim communities uh, to, to ask the media not to glorify um, these shooters. So I stayed very much, the one scene that does deal with um, his home before it came, came down and uh, really stays true to, I tried to stay true to the, the main subjects and let uh, one of the mothers sort of own her own feelings um, about about that and, and his mother as well for those of you who don't remember, he killed his his mother, who um, had given him access to 
to guns. Um, so that's, I sort of don't deal with him as a character per se, although you do glean um, through the voices of some youth in town, um, you know, from the mouths of babes, the, the sort of obvious pieces about what was this guy's trajectory and how did he get there and why did he have access to these weapons? So, I mean, Kim, that raises questions that I think all filmmakers face about uh, negotiating a relationship with their subjects, you know, if there are any ground rules, <clears throat> you know, sometimes the subject, particularly on something sensitive, gives you access, but there's there's going to be lines that, uh, that you can't uh, cross. I mean, Dawn, in, in, in your case, did you have you know, those kinds of sets of, of, of ground rules. Uh, I mean, I can think of a very basic one that lots of times in the abortion clinics when you're filming, you mostly don't see the, the faces of people who are showing up for services. Um, we made a, a, what we would do is go into clinics. It was very difficult to get people to talk about their experience full face on camera. Um, and, um, and so I just kept at it. So as the clinic owners became more and more comfortable with filming, what we started doing is they would make an announcement that said, I felt like it was really, really important, um, I agree with Kim a lot, to give the patients um, agency and ownership and to say, I'm here filming and telling a story about these clinic owners that you may not know, but you have a choice to participate or not. And so we tried to be really rigorous about no cheating, no accidental shoot, you know, they're already really traumatized enough coming through the doors. And so the last thing I want to do is traumatize anybody else. So we would make an announcement, we're here. Um, if anybody would, is interested in speaking to us, you can approach the desk and let us know. So we would do that. Um, for the clinic owners, they were all pretty open about things. What they were worried about is there's ongoing litigation. And so it's very anxiety provoking for them to think that maybe they would say something that could hurt their entire livelihoods, like their entire lives have been spent becoming abortion providers, and it's literally all on the line right now. So they were in pretty high state of anxiety about that. Um, but our biggest champion and advocate is our uh, Dr. Parker, who's the, the one doctor who was basically like, follow me around, and I joke and call him our main producer because he would, you know, He's a doctor and he has um, one detail is he doesn't have any anesthesia. He has a local topical, but because of the crazy laws, there's people don't go to sleep. So he's like, I use verbicane. I speak to my patients. I spend time with them. And so he would get to know people. And there, sometimes he would be like, you know, you have a really good story. There's this woman I'm working with. And he started like kind of, so the people that you see who appear, almost all of them are from Dr. Parker. Um, their extension of trust for him. I think also they were grateful. But I said, I was like, you don't have to talk, you know, but if you want to, we would love to hear. And so a number of them did. So it's constant navigation. So we have a few minutes left. I want to get other questions. Uh, here's a hand up here, if we can get this gentleman a microphone. Um, so without naming any names, there are a lot of documentaries out there that are obviously very heavily biased <laughs> one way or the other. Um, and a lot of people, you know, they just want documentaries to present the facts just to neutrally observe. So how do you maintain that neutrality in your documentaries? Um, I mean, you know, I am pro-choice, <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean I have license to not tell the truth. It's the truth as I see it. Um, and so we, in our case, wrote to a number of the people passing the laws 
and asked if they wanted to speak on camera, and, and nobody did. There was one person who said he would, but we just couldn't get the, the timing right. So I think that you do have an ethical obligation to kind of view um, what you're showing through the lens of, the last thing I want is for my film to be dismissed as, oh, she's just a pro-choice hack. So you try your best. Um, in abortion in particular, I think there's very little gray area. <laughs> People are kind of with you or they're against you. Um, so you hope that it's a personal enough story that even the people who um, are anti-choice will at least watch and experience. Um, but I don't pretend that I'm neutral. I'm not neutral. I think the laws are wrong. So, but I still try and tell the truth. I think in my case, um, I, as I said before, I didn't set out to make an advocacy film per se. Um, but I, I really was interested in creating something that would maybe help to take the conversation in the country out of such a polarized place and open dialogue so people could have the conversation in a more constructive way. And it was more about the way I was choosing to do that through showing um, the, the truth of what happened in this community and, and how they ended up. And, uh, you know, and, and, and if people ask me personally, I guess, like Dawn, do, do you spend three years in that community and not, sh you know, have strong feelings about uh, people's, uh, you know, people having assault weapons in their, in their homes? Y yes. Um, but Josh's film is very pro-advocacy. Do not tweet pictures of your dick. <laughs> um, we've got a hand up uh, over here. You're good. We can hear you. Question. The, the Second Amendment advocates, you hear it once, you've heard it a million times. It's not the gun that kills. It's, it's the person that, that kills. People kill people. Uh, how, what was your thought process uh, about the possibility of, of, of them coming after you on that topic when you were making this film? Well, that remains to be seen. I mean, like Dawn, you know, um, I'm bracing myself for, you know, you, you enter into these projects and you, you, you sometimes don't really think about, um, I guess it's like having your first kid or something, you don't really think about what it's going to be. Um, but I think in, in, the, in this case, um, I think it will provoke a lot of emotion. I mean, one of the things that's always so surprising to me is, you know, when people kind of get into that conversation about people emotionalizing it. You know, my film is deeply emotional, and it should be. It was the worst um, shooting of school children in American history. How can it not be deeply emotional for people to be worried and concerned about their, the safety of their children every morning? Um, so I'm not sure if that answers your question, but um, it, 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 I'll, it, I'll continue to sort of, you know, as I'm uh, attacked, um, tread, you know, I, I haven't planned it. Uh, it's going to be organic. We'll see what happens. So we have time for one or two more questions. Uh, right over here. Um, I guess I think this question is probably for Dawn and Kim in terms of your projects being hot-button topics. Um, you know, if the media... It, there's an opportunity for it to really become popular and people will watch it. But have you considered what are your um, outreach and engagement strategies around sort of pushing this into, uh, into the conversation, into the dialogue, not with those of us who are, you know, already part of the choir, but those that might be on the fence? Uh, we have a very 
ambitious and robust outreach plan. Um, as Tom mentioned, the Supreme Court is going to hear arguments about the constitutionality of uh, kind of a model trap law that's in Texas on March 2nd. Um, and then a decision is in June. So between now and June, we are working with some of the premier um, outreach and engagement folks in documentary, Rocco Films, Film Sprout, and Abramarama. We have a, a 25 city theatrical planned um, and community screenings and educational and community talk back town events all planned for this six months. And all of those distributors agreed to forego their windows and just throw as many screenings as possible. So we engaged the team that did the outreach for Invisible War and the Hunting Ground. Um, and we wanna be on as many college campuses. So we're, we're pretty much all in. I mean, we're raising a lot of money for outreach because this is the time during an election year and while there's Supreme Court focus to have people talk about the real impact of these laws. So um, outreach has been a really, really big, um, well thought through, terrifying <laughs> um, part of our plan. Yeah, similar for, for, for me, we've been for two years thinking about an impact plan around this and I think that, um, and, and it being an election year, I think one of the opportunities we have is that um, the, the, the film, the film um, really depicts every town in America and so we have through the voice of a teacher, a first responder, um, a clergy, we have the opportunity to reach a lot of different contingents that are outside of the sort of uh, just the, the mainstream choir and also a real desire to um, tap into to, to helping to, to frame this as a public health issue. We're working with partners like Amnesty International that have just this year really taken on gun violence as a human rights issue around children. So there's a lot of um, a wide array of partners also in the in the faith community, which is essential with a, a partner that uh, of the project, producing partners, so very robust campaign as well. Uh, let me ask uh, Josh and Dylan about where you're at in your distribution uh, life right now. Uh, okay, you want to pass the phone to Dylan? <laughs> Josh, uh, well, uh, you had some news this week. What's that? You had some news this week. Yeah, we're very happy that we, were, uh, we are going to be distributed by Sundance Selects um, in theaters in May. Um, and thank you, Ryan. And, um, and then the film will be premiering on uh, Showtime in the fall. Uh, Dylan, where are you at with Tickled? And uh, no news at the moment. We're, um, hopefully you're, you're here to sell the film. Well, I guess, I mean, we're, we're mostly here because uh, we entered the film and they told us we could come. So um, <laughs> anything else that happens after that is, is definitely a bonus. But, I mean, we want to make sure people see the film. So um, whatever happens, we'll find a way. So all these films are showing on Sunday. Uh, uh, you could start your day at 11.45 a.m. at the Mark with Wiener. You could uh, move on 3 p.m. for Newtown at the Temple. Stay at the Temple at 6 p.m. for Trapped. And then at 9 p.m., Tickled uh, is going to be playing uh, at the Yarrow. And, of course, there will be other screenings uh, throughout the festival. Uh, if you enjoyed today's panel, I invite you to come back for our other panels. Tomorrow morning, we'll be here at 10.30. We're going to give the, the first unveil of Sundance Now Doc Club's uh, new series, Take Five, a series of five short films on the theme Justice in America. Uh, the filmmakers are going to be here. Uh, we're going to show some clips and have a conversation about that. And then if you're still in town on Wednesday, we'll be back here at 1 o'clock on Wednesday for a panel called uh, Documenting Celebrity with the filmmakers of Maplethorpe 
and uh, the Norman Lear film that just had its world premiere uh, last night. Uh, please do uh, talk to our friends at Sundance Now Doc Club if you want to get a 30-day th uh, uh, free trial. And uh, thank you very much for coming. Thanks especially to Don Porter, Kim Snyder, Josh Creekman, and Dylan Reeve.